Chronicles chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. If you don't have a Bible and need to use one, there should be one around in the pew in front of you. It would be helpful to have that open. 2 Chronicles 36, at least the portion we're going to read, is on page 388. As you're turning there, I want to mention that um, on September 10th, uh, not only does the men's retreat registration end, but uh, that night, normally we have our Sunday evening prayer meetings on the first Sunday night of the month, but in September we're moving it back to the 10th. But it won't just be a prayer meeting. We're going to have a full worship service that night, and I hope that you will make plans to be here. Seven o'clock, right here in the auditorium, we will sing praise. Stephen uh, Smith will preach, and then together, all together, we will spend time praying for our Judea project. Remember, we are seeking to pray and ask the Lord's wisdom about whether we ought to pursue a church plant in Bargersville. I hope that you are praying for that diligently, that you are setting aside particular time each Friday to do that. Uh, but we are going to, on September 10th, come together as a church uh, and, and worship the Lord together and hear God's Word together uh, and then uh, pray together about this Judea project. And so I hope that you will make plans to be there. Um, more on that maybe in uh, the weeks in between here and there. But Second Chronicles 36, we're in a series uh, looking at the storyline of the Bible. And actually today we come to most likely the lowest point in the history of God's people. Some are already in exile, but now the rest of God's people will go into exile. If you're not a Christian, or if you're new to Christianity, or unfamiliar with the Bible story, I want you to know that what we're going to read and what we're going to think about today is hard. It is hard for all of us. But it is part of the story, and as we'll see, there is still hope. So let's read Second Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 11. We'll read through verse 21. Second Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 11. This is what the Spirit says to us. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that He had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons 
until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years let's pray together Our Father, we come to your word, inspired by your spirit, written by your servant. And we come to words that are difficult, that are tragic, and that are true. So we ask now, Lord, as we come to your word, that your spirit would be our teacher, that you would teach us the truth. And God, that our hearts would respond to your truth with faith. Give us grace that that might be the case today. Help us to see ourselves and our sin. And help us to see our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. I want you to imagine um, a young woman, a teenager, uh, growing up in a godly home, not a home with perfect parents, for no such home exists, but they very clearly love her. They teach her, and they encourage her, and they discipline her, and they provide all that's needed. They sacrifice for her. They cry with her and laugh with her and pray for her. They struggle when she struggles, and they celebrate when she celebrates. I mean, it's a good and a godly home. And yet, as is too often the case, she still rebels. Her attitude and her actions demonstrate that rebellion daily. She pushes them away and she pushes their religion away. Yeah, she goes to church begrudgingly, but she sits there with her arms folded, listening as little as possible. So much of what she says and does on a daily basis is a rejection of all that they are and all that they've taught her. And when adulthood arrives, she's gone out the door. Oh, she still wants her parents, but on her terms. When she's in trouble, when she needs money. And when we imagine a scenario like that, the question comes to mind, how could someone treat their parents like this? Some of you may be on the receiving end of such things. Some of you may have been on the giving end of such rebellion. And maybe some of you teenagers are in the midst of those days of rebellion. How could they treat their parents that way? It's a sad story, but it is also the story of the nation of Israel. God has given them everything. He rescues them from Egypt. He provides for them in the wilderness. He gives them His law so they can flourish. He gives them the tabernacle so they can enjoy relationship with Him. He gives them their home their land where they live. He has taught them, and He has loved them, and He has encouraged them, and He has disciplined them. And unlike the parents in our little scenario, God is perfect. He never makes a single misstep in caring for His people. And still, Israel walks away over and over again. They reject Him 
They disobey Him. They only want Him on their terms. So that in Isaiah chapter 1, God says, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. How could they treat their God like that? How could we? And it's that rebellion that leads to exile, to judgment. That's the moment that we read about here in 2 Chronicles 36. But before we actually learn from that moment, I actually want to look at what has come to that moment. I want us to think first about the story that leads to judgment, okay? The story that leads to judgment. So we're going to have to go into the history classroom for just a bit because the last time we left Israel, it was 450 years earlier, back in 1 Samuel. Saul becomes king, but in time Saul loses the kingdom due to his disobedience, and God brings David to the throne. And in 2 Samuel, God makes a promise to David. You remember I mentioned that last week, that, that one of David's descendants would be an eternal king. Now, this is an important text, so we are going to read it. Uh, it'll be on the screen, but you may want to jot it down for your own study. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. God says this to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Now, if the period came there, it wouldn't sound unusual at all, but there's another word there. I will establish his kingdom forever. An eternal kingdom is going to be established in one of David's descendants. Now, the rest of 2 Samuel is a recording of all of David's successes and failures as king of Israel. The next book of the Bible is 1 Kings, and when you come to the beginning of 1 Kings, Solomon is king. Solomon, David's son. And some good things happen. Solomon seeks wisdom from God in order to reign. Solomon builds a temple for the worship of God. But on the whole, Solomon is not the kind of king that God requires. He is not after serving. He is after power and wealth. And in one of the ways he develops that is through political alliances that he makes by way of marriage. In the end, Solomon ends up with 700 wives. And these wives come with their false gods. But rather than insisting that in Israel we only worship the one true and living God, Solomon accommodates the worship of all these other gods. Solomon's heart, you see, is divided. He seeks the Lord for wisdom, but he sets up altars for false gods. And because his heart is divided, the kingdom will be divided. And that actually happens in 1 Kings chapter 12. Solomon's son is the king, uh, Rehoboam, and uh, through his own foolishness, there is a revolt so that the ten northern kingdoms secede from the south. They break off. They say, essentially, like in elementary school playground terms, they say, we're going to take our ball and go home. And that is exactly what they do in 1 Kings chapter 12. And so from there, the writer of 1 Kings and 2 Kings ping-pongs back and forth between the northern and the southern kingdoms to tell us the story of how these kingdoms go, primarily that they keep spiraling downward spiritually. In the north, Jeroboam is the king. And when you're the king, you want to make sure, and you've, you've been part of this revolt, you've led this revolt, you've brought all these people out, you don't actually want them going back to Jerusalem. You don't want them visiting the south. But God's law said they were supposed to go to Jerusalem a few times a year for worship. So Jeroboam hatches 
this brilliant idea in his mind, he's going to set up a couple of altars in the northern kingdom and put golden calves on it. That went well the first time there were golden calves, right? If you don't know the Bible, it did not go well the first time there were golden calves. But he sets up a couple of altars with golden calves and says, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And so from the moment of its inception, the northern kingdom of Israel is essentially founded on idolatry. And that idolatry flourishes. The northern kingdom, just so that you know, is not only known as Israel. So when you're reading the prophets, you'll read about Israel or maybe Samaria or Ephraim. That's all talking about the northern kingdom. When you read Judah, though, Judah is a reference to the southern kingdom. These are helpful things that once you learn them, just jot them into your Bible so that as you're reading and you're like, wait, who is Samaria again? I need to remember that. You can go back and and look at it. But Rehoboam stays as the king of the south. So in the north, idolatry flourishes. They even sacrifice children in the worship of idols. God sends them prophets. God sends them Elijah and Elisha. But the people don't want to listen to them. They don't want to obey God's Word. They don't want to repent. And so finally, they hit rock bottom in 2 Kings chapter 17. Israel faces God's judgment. God sends the Assyrians who attack and conquer and take them into exile. Okay? It is a very unhappy story in the north because there are no good kings in the north. The southern kingdom, Judah, is also on a downward spiral, but its spiral is slower, okay? There are some bright spots. There are a few kings who want to bring reform, men like Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat and Josiah. But in the end, none of it lasts. Just like Israel, they don't listen to God's prophets. Just like Israel, they don't want to obey. Just like Israel, they don't want to repent. And so about 150 years after the Assyrians attack the northern kingdom, God sends the Babylonians on the southern kingdom. They attack and they conquer, and Judah goes into exile. That is what we read in 2 Chronicles 36. Now, that is a whirlwind of a story, and there are lots of ups and downs and triumphs and tragedies along the way. But ultimately, it is a story that leads to judgment. It's a story of sin. It's a story of idolatry. It's a story of stubbornness and hard-heartedness and closed ears. It's a terrible story. It's a sad story, and actually, friends... It's a universal story. You see, the story of every human being begins as a story of sin. Like them, we don't want to listen to God. We don't want to obey God. We we don't want to turn to Him. Sure, there may be a bright spot or two along the way, right? You may have grown up in church, had godly parents. Uh, You you may have had a great VBS experience or youth camp, or, or, or maybe you're in a season of coming back to church. Maybe because you had your first child or you're facing a hard time or, or because you're just really in a dark place. And if that's you and if you're here because of those things, I am so glad that you're here. I really believe you are in the right place. When you hit all those things, God has given you an instinct to come to the right place to look for an answer. The reality is, though, is that even though we have these bright spots along the way, all our stories, as they are, as we write them, can only lead to judgment. It's the only place they lead. It's the only place the Bible says that they lead. Our stories lead to judgment. The second thing I want us to see is the lessons to learn from judgment, and that will focus us in right here at 2 Chronicles 36, because here I think there are four lessons that we should learn from this moment of judgment. The first lesson 
is that God sees our lives. God sees our lives. Look at verses 11 and 12. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He all, oh, I'll just stop there. So he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Now, what you see here in the way that Zedekiah is introduced is a pretty consistent pattern. When you read First and Second Kings, when you read Second Chronicles, um, you see who's king, how long he reigned, and how he did. Did he do good or did he do evil? And the way that good or evil is always determined is in the sight of the Lord. In the sight of the Lord. God sees all these kings and He evaluates them. He passes His verdict on how they did. You see, God sees all that Zedekiah does. Nothing goes unnoticed. Nothing slips past His sovereign eyes. He sees the king's words. He sees the king's actions. He sees the king's thoughts. He sees the king's motivations. He sees, as Hebrews 4 says, God sees, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. No creature is hidden. There is no throne that can hide a person from God. God sees. And then God passes His judgment, His evaluation, His verdict, good or evil, which means that none of these kings has the last word on their own life. It's not uncommon in these recent years for former presidents or heads of state to write memoirs, autobiographies, uh, usually not touting all of the things that went wrong in their uh, time serving, but usually it's kind of a self-hagiography, as it were. It's kind of a self-celebration of all of the good that I did. You need to remember this, and you need to remember this, and remember how all these people were bad to me, but remember this. In the end, all of those self-celebrations will not matter. They're not going to sway the last verdict. No king has the last word on his reign. No president has the last word on his presidency. No person has the last word on their life. The only verdict that matters is God's verdict. Kings can't change anything about it. Kings can do a lot, can't they? With their money, with their power, with their influence, with their terror, kings can do a lot, but they cannot change this verdict. And dear friend, what is true of kings is true of us. You and I do not have the last word on our lives. What people say in the eulogy at our funerals is not the last word on our lives. Only one has the last word on your life and on my life, and that is God. And there's no way that we can hide ourselves from Him. He sees us as we truly are. You know, on uh, people's cameras, this is a, a very odd phenomenon. Like, I know you in real life, but you have this filter on your camera when you take a selfie that makes your skin look very, very smooth makes your eyes look especially bright like they're twinkling. I mean, we have filters on cameras that will make us appear better than we actually are, right? I mean, I enjoy mirrors that do that for me. But this, this is what we, we have. We have all these filters. Well, friends, when we arrive on the last day, there's not going to be a filter that'll make you look better than you actually are. Church attendance is not a filter that will make you look better than you actually are. Godly parents are not a filter that will make you look better than you actually are. Preaching sermons is not a filter 
that will make one look better than he actually is. Generosity with your money is not a filter that will make you look better than you actually are. God sees us as we truly are, and His verdict on all humanity is settled. In Romans 3, He says, no one does good, not even one. And so if you imagine, if I were to keel over tomorrow, is, is uh, Toby, he was born in such and such a year, and he lived X number of years, and he did not do good in the sight of the Lord. That's the verdict. That's the verdict on every human life. God sees it. The second lesson is that God speaks to us. Look at verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. God sees them as they really are. He has declared that they are not right in His eyes. But God calls them to repent. Ezekiel 33, the Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So before God sends judgment, he actually speaks of judgment. Through his prophets, he warns the people what is going to happen if they don't repent. Why does he do that? Does he do that the way a great basketball player might trash talk before a game and then drive you into the ground? No. God speaks out of his compassion. Now, that is not instinctive to us, is it? To put the ideas of compassion and words of judgment in the same sentence. And yet, this is what drives God to speak through his prophets, to call his people back to Him. You see, we're blind. We can't even see how sinful we really are. We can't see where sin will take us. We can't see the cliff we're about to walk off of. And so if we are walking off a cliff and someone comes along and starts telling us, you are going to die. You are going to walk off this cliff. It is unavoidable. You are going there unless you do something about it. Well, friend, let me tell you, that's compassion, actually, isn't it? That's compassion. It takes courage, and it takes compassion. I can't remember whether it was, uh, I think it was either Martin Lloyd-Jones or Charles Spurgeon mostly because I've read more of their sermons than anyone else. Uh, but one of them, or someone, says, has said, if, if I could scare you out of hell, I would do it. If I could scare you out of hell, I would do it. Now, why would anyone say that? Because they long for people to escape judgment. Not because they actually believe that they can scare people out of hell, but because they want to do everything in their power to convince people. This is what the prophets were doing. This is what God does today through His Word, through preaching. I mean, it is not easy to hear this kind of thing. It is not easy to hear of judgment, but God has determined to speak of it because He loves us, because He is compassionate, because He calls us to respond in repentance. Look, if you're walking in this direction and nobody ever says anything to you about the cliff that's in front of you, why would you ever turn around? You have no reason to. You say, yeah, whatever, I'm blind. I know where I'm going. I've got this thing figured out. I know this path like the back of my hand. I, I, I figured this thing out. I'm going this way. And none of you said a thing. I was about to step off these stairs. I tell you what. Jude says, pull them back from the fire. Pull them back. 
not in arrogance, not in harshness, in compassion. Because I was blind. Because I was lost. Because I was headed off a cliff. And God spoke through someone to me. How can I not speak to you? God speaks to us. The third lesson is that God's patience runs out. Runs out. Look at verse 16. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people, until there was no remedy. Look, it's even worse than, than people not listening. They are despising God's message. They are scoffing at it. They, they, the, these folks don't think God's message is worth their time. It's not worth their consideration. It's not worth the paper it's written down on. It is altogether worthless. And in time, God's patience runs out. But listen, God has been incredibly patient with these folks. God isn't like an abusive father who, who, who you, just, you just agitate him a little bit and boom, the wrath comes down out of nowhere. This morning, this morning, I was in our garage and there's a bag on the ground and I noticed that we have been in a war in our home the last few weeks. Not between human beings, but between we have been seeking to fulfill Genesis 1 and exercise dominion over creation, namely ants, all right? And they have seemed to have been everywhere. And this morning I'm walking out and, and we've had, you know, bug guys come and the, the inside seems to, we're getting there, you know. But I walk out and I see an ant and, and I just like it stirs within me, right? I just see the ant next to this bag and I, and I, and I kind of, Swipe at it and kick, and then when I kick the bag, four or five more are right there. And then I, I pick up the bag, and more drop. And then I start shaking the bag, and ants after ants after ants start coming out of this bag, and I am stomping all over. The, it was like nobody believed I was a Baptist preacher at that moment. I mean, I was, I was dancing across the, the garage floor. I was doing the ant dance, all right? And I was going back and forth, and what I found out is that a, a candy wrapper had unintentionally been left in this bag. But as soon as I saw these ants, you know what happened? As soon as I saw it, I snapped against the ants. God's judgment is not like that. Aren't you glad? God does not see us like I saw those ants this morning. God has been patient with these wayward, idolatrous, unbelieving people for centuries. Centuries have gone by, and He has not brought the judgment that they deserve. He has been patient with them. The Israelites have consistently turned their backs on the Lord, and God has consistently been patient with them. But, but patience as a characteristic of God is not eternal. Just wrap your mind around that. If patience were eternal, it's no longer actually God's patience. It's just God being a moral jellyfish, you know, just spineless. He's just a welcome mat we can just roll over because God, God is not a welcome mat that we trample, and he just says, oh, I'm patient, eternally patient. He is not eternally patient. There is a time when the patience is ended. You hear it right here. They kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until there was a moment When his patience ran out, 
God is patient, but He is not passive. He will not simply allow us to walk all over Him. This is why, actually, we should be so desperately praying for our unbelieving children and our unbelieving friends and our unbelieving parents and our unbelieving neighbors because the last breath on earth marks the definite end of God's patience. God is patient all the way through. At the very moment, with the last breath, if they utter faith in Jesus, God is patient all the way till there. But the Bible says it is appointed once for men to die. And after that comes judgment. Now we can all relish it. We just all revel in God's patience, don't we? God's patience toward us before we were Christians. God's patience with us as we are Christians. But eternity will not ring with God being patient and waiting for people to turn. Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. The fourth lesson is that God keeps His Word. Verses 17 to 21 unfold a horrific scene coming to its pinnacle there in verse 19. They burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. I mean, what exactly would you be thinking if you had rolled up on this place this morning and the whole place was in flames and the angry mob that hates your God and hates your Savior was there holding the torches the way that the Babylonians come in is described in verse 17 no compassion. God spoke to them in compassion, but when the Babylonians come, they come with no compassion. And notice why it happens, verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord. God has spoken of judgment, and now He keeps His word. The Babylonians are at the gate, and the terror of judgment with no compassion falls on Jerusalem. God's word about judgment is not like the word of a parent who talks about discipline and never follows through. Well, I mean it this time. No, no, I, no, I mean it this time. Oh, no, no, no. Now, this time, I really mean it. I really, really mean it this time. Don't do it again. What The next time you do that, that is not how God operates. His words about judgment are not empty words. His words about judgment are not hollow words. He keeps His word. But you want to know what the really sobering truth is? God's words about this particular judgment are, God, are God's words about a temporal judgment. In other words, it'll happen, and then it'll be over. The sobering reality is that what you read, if you just read verses 17 to 21 slowly and really take in what is happening, this is only a foretaste of the judgment that is coming. The words that the Bible uses to describe eternal judgment, to describe hell, are terrifying. It is a place reserved for the devil and his angels. It is a place of darkness. It is a place of separation. It is a place of destruction. It is a place of unfathomable torment, and it lasts forever. Hell is not a reversible 
condition. It is eternal. Hell must be taken seriously because God keeps His Word. God keeps His Word. All of these are sobering lessons, aren't they? That God sees our lives, that God speaks in compassion, that God's patience runs out, that God will keep His Word. But we need to keep these lessons near us because how is it that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are seeking to glorify God? Well, one of those ways is by engaging the world with the gospel, right? Why would we ever proclaim the glories of a Savior if there's nothing from which we must be saved? Then we're just asking people to be kind of religious like we are. There is no urgency in a plea that doesn't keep these things in mind. There is no genuine longing to see people come to faith. If we don't see that apart from Jesus Christ... Hell is the only option. Christianity is not a nice religion to create nice people and nice communities and a nice world. Christianity is, is, is the declaration of a God who will save us from His own judgment if we will come to Him in faith. Salvation, the word salvation is emptied of its meaning if there is no judgment. And the reality is, as much as we struggle with judgment, every single human being wants there to be judgment. Maybe not the way that God describes it, maybe not on the people God describes it about, but there are people in human history and maybe in your lives that you're thinking, this, this is the kind of thing God has to intervene, God has to do something about this, God has to punish evil. Isn't that the case? The thing is, is that the God who will bring judgment is the God who determines judgment. And that's why when you have lunch with that coworker again, the one you've been working up the, 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 the courage to, to say something about Jesus, Make this next time the time. That neighbor, that person at the restaurant you're always frequenting and talking to, and you know all about their kids and you know all about their family, it's time to cross the line. It's time to cross the line. God forbid that they would not be there next time. And we said nothing. We have to learn these lessons. The story that leads to judgment, the lessons to learn from judgment, but finally, hope in the face of judgment. Judgment isn't the last word. Neither in Second Chronicles nor in a book a couple of books back, Second Kings, which describes the end as well. Here at the end of Second Chronicles, we won't read it, but you'll look in verse 23, you'll notice a name there, Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord from Jeremiah, is going to set the exiles free. Now, Persia had conquered Babylon, and in the first year that Cyrus is in charge of these exiles, he says, whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. He says God charged him to build him a place, a house, a temple. In this wonderful turn of events, in fulfillment of prophecy, Cyrus sets the Jews free. So all the way, reading all the way up to verse 21, going into exile is horrible. The judgment is terrible, and it is terrifying. 
but there is hope from the most unlikely of sources. Cyrus. Nobody would expect Cyrus. Turn backwards to 2 Kings chapter 25. If you're using a pew Bible and want help navigating, it's page 333. 2 Kings chapter 25, I want to read verses 27 to 30. This is, what, this is what it says there. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. All right, this king is the king, his son of Nebuchadnezzar, who originally attacked Babylon. And he has compassion on this Judean king who's in exile, Jehoiachin. Now, if you just read that and you don't have the story in mind, you... You may think, what is the big deal about... I mean, it's a nice thing, right? It's a nice thing when a really bad king shows some mercy. But here is, here is an enemy sitting at the Babylonian king's table with daily provisions. It is an unusual scene. It is a glorious scene. It is actually a scene that gives great hope because do you know who Jehoiachin is? He's a descendant of David. of David, the David, 2 Samuel 7, David. In other words, when we see Jehoiachin sitting at the king's table, getting provisions, living the, the best life that an exile could probably live, we don't just see a nice bit of mercy. We actually see that God is going to still keep His promise. God promised a descendant of David was going to sit on the throne forever, and David's family line is going on. The promised king is still coming. But here's what's really great. We have to go way forward, but here's what's going to happen. When that king comes, he is not going to merely give political refuge to political exiles. He is going to give freedom to spiritual exile, from spiritual exile. The whole human race is exiled from God. Did you know that? In the beginning, Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. Because of their sin, they are cast out of God's presence, out of the garden. There is no hope of returning. And all of us have inherited that same condition. Our sin exiles us from God. And if you thought Cyrus, the king of Persia, was a surprising source for freedom from exile, it was even more surprising in Jesus' day when He walked around saying things like this, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is even more shocking because at least a king has the power to set somebody free. And here's a carpenter turned rabbi saying, if He sets you free, you're really going to be free. But that's what Jesus came to do, friends. Jesus is the Son of David, the one that God promised would come, and He came to set us free. He came to set us free from sin. He came to set us free from exile and the, that, that sin brings. And He didn't do it by a royal decree. He did it through His death. He sets us free, actually, by entering our exile by taking God's judgment for us. The wrath that rises up against us was poured out on Him. He satisfied God's wrath for us on the cross. He knew our exile. He felt our exile on the cross. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And He goes to His death, and He goes to the tomb, and then He emerges from the tomb with our freedom in His hand. 
And he gladly gives that freedom to all who will trust in him. The hope in the face of judgment back then was a strange king and one nobody Davidic son, you know, who's receiving mercy, but the source of hope, not simply for the Jews, but for the world, is Jesus Christ. Friend, your story may be leading to judgment, but your story isn't over. Your story can change. Your story can make a glorious turn from judgment to hope if you'll hear God's compassionate warning about the judgment that is to come and if you will repent and turn to the most unlikely of places, a crucified Savior. He will save you. And if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Let's pray. Oh God, how thankful we are for your word, for the glory and grace of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you will remind us once again if we are Christians, of the judgment from which we have been saved, that you would motivate us once again in our efforts to share the gospel. God, I pray for those who, whose story is still leading to judgment. Would you give them grace and turn their lives from judgment to hope? Give them grace to turn to Jesus and to cling to Him. Save them, Lord. Set them free, Lord Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen. Would you stand? We're actually just going to sing uh, the doxology before we leave. Let's just sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures.